0: A recent New York Times essay claimed the change in COVID-19 death rates is a laudable example of the U.S. overcoming racial injustice, pointing to improvements in vaccination rates in Black and Hispanic communities, Times senior writer David Leonard wrote that the racial gap in death rates has also disappeared. Quote, in a country with deep racial inequities where COVID was initially another tragic example, he went on to say... Quote, the virus is no longer disproportionately harming Black and Hispanic Americans, end quote. And once again, we are implored to use the story of redemption to whitewash the story of racial injustice.
1: That was Nathan Chomelo, reading from the first opinion essay, COVID-19 is an inverse equity story, not a racial equity success story, that he wrote with Marina del Rios and Neil A. Lewis Jr. Nathan's a pediatrician and internist, an adjunct assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota, and the former director of COVID-19 vaccine equity for the Minnesota Department of Public Health. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
0: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Many drugs across the country are at risk of shortage. Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss how they're revamping America's broken
1: medical supply chain. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine the essential medicine supply chain from the ingredients to finished products. We're making this possible through continuous flow chemistry and other advanced development and manufacturing processes. Through our smart CDMO services, we help pharmaceutical and biotech companies improve yields, reduce manufacturing costs, and sustain our environment by providing customized services for small molecule APIs and registered starting materials across all stages of development, all done right here in the United States. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's p h l o w-usa.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's a pleasure to talk with you today, Nathan. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. Glad to be here. Let's jump right in. In your essay that you co-wrote, You aim to counter the narrative that narrowing the gap in COVID-related death rates between white Americans and Americans of color is an example of the U.S. overcoming racial injustice. What got you fired up about that?
0: I think the narrative around public health and the narrative around COVID-19 have really driven a lot of the decisions that have been made uh, for better or for worse throughout the pandemic and continue to drive those decisions. And so when we saw framing that said that COVID-19 was an example of us overcoming racial injustice, um, for us that have been talking about the racial inequity impacts of COVID-19 from the very beginning, have been advocating for us to do better and live up to the commitments that many made, particularly in the summer of 2020, and have continued to struggle with uh, some of the failures to live up to those commitments, you know, to see that held up as a example of overcoming uh, racial injustice, uh, just didn't sit right. And and so we really wanted to make sure that there was uh, a narrative out there that uh, gave a broader context so that folks didn't think that the work was completed.
1: You know, Leonard wrote, and I'm quoting here, COVID has killed a smaller percentage of Black, Latino, or Asian Americans over the past year than white Americans. To deny that reality is to miss an important part of the COVID story. And I want to emphasize one small phrase, which was over the past year, it, the, over the past year doesn't mean since the beginning. So, so this is looking at a, a change, but is kind of ignoring what happened in the beginning, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think that is the, the problem with kind of ending uh, a piece saying, you know, we have overcome essentially, uh, you know, taking that very, um, famous phrase from the civil rights movement, um, and, and trying to put it in this context of our COVID-19 interventions. I think there are definitely things to celebrate. And I think that's one thing that if, if, if we had much more time or even uh, an opportunity to have an, uh, uh, kind of a conversation with uh, Mr. Leonard or others who are talking about this, I think there would be a lot we agree on on where there has been success. But that success has come in the face of uh, a lot of decisions that were made um, that didn't prioritize racial equity uh, that led to the racial equity uh, inequities that we saw and the disparities in outcomes uh, for our communities. Um, and and so while we have those successes to, to point towards, um, they are steps in the way and not a demonstration that we are where we need to be.
1: So this, what I'll call a failure of perspective, in a sense, not to see the whole thing. You mentioned at the start that it actually has there's a there's repercussions to it in terms of what policymakers are doing. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean certainly when
0: you start to frame COVID nineteen as we a way that we've overcome you know, racial inequity um, within public health, um, it makes it seem like where we are right now, the status quo that we're at right now is an acceptable status quo. And what we are seeing is that a lot of the investments that were necessary to get those, um, uh, you know, positive steps and, and the decrease in mortality numbers or Black, Hispanic, American, Indian, and other communities, You know those investments have gone away, whether they be from the federal government and money uh, for the COVID-19 response there or from uh, state and local governments. Um, we just aren't seeing the same level of investment uh, to get the word out for, say, about boosters, to continue to offer things like masks or tests, um, or to then take these lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 and apply them to the many other health inequities we see in our communities um, and And so, you know, I think to to take that leap and and say that, you know, we have overcome, we really would need to see that the lessons we've learned are being applied, even if you look at the uh, monkeypox response um, and the disparities we're seeing in access to vaccination there. Um, Again, it doesn't demonstrate that we have, you know, uh, equivocally learned our lesson and moved and put in uh, place systems and structures and policies uh, to see this continued success and to not see these gaps emerge in the first place. Place.
1: You use the writer's own words to turn it around a little bit. He said that that we need to, quote, acknowledge the full picture in the in the essay. And and you all wrote that maybe he wasn't acknowledging the full picture. And you listed a number of disparities in COVID-19. Decreased life expectancy, kids losing caregivers, job losses, mental health, long COVID. And, and it goes the list goes on I'm guessing that those were experienced by people in all groups but were they experienced more by people of color yeah I mean the, in the piece we lay out some
0: of the statistics you know specifically around the disproportionate impacts of uh, losses uh, uh in the economy right losses of jobs um, losses of you know wealth uh from family members um, we look at things like as you mentioned losses of caregivers and how that is, you know, one of the kind of most stark examples, because for a child to lose a caregiver, that's going to impact them, their development and where they are, and and it's going to impact their trajectory for the rest of their life. And we've seen a disproportionate impact in the number of children who have lost caregivers throughout this pandemic. And so, um, you know, those pieces weren't, aren't captured when you just look at mortality rates week by week, month by month, um, over the course of, you know, the last year. Um, and it really is uh, you know, it, when you don't have that context, uh, then you can come to the conclusion that when folks are asking for more ongoing supports for us to continue to uh, prioritize communities that have been hit hardest throughout the pandemic, that the question could may come up, you know, why is that necessary? And and so I think that's why it was real important to put out uh, that the fuller context would capture these broader impacts um, and that would factor into whether or not uh, we could consider something a public health success.
1: If death rates are any indication, maybe the gaps in other things like life expectancy, decreased life expectancy, or job losses might shrink as well. But Will the ripple effects of these things be felt by everyone or are they gonna be worse among people of color?
0: You know, I think we're still within the pandemic, right? Um, And and we're certainly not anywhere where we could say we can start to sit back and, and look at the, the data and, uh, and have some more concrete answers to, you know, a, a question like that. But I think where we are right now, yes, you will say that there's been a disproportionate impact amongst our communities of color um, and that that will be felt. Uh, disproportionately going forward, particularly when you look at the context of just how our society has been structured along lines of race and that we know that there was structural racism before the pandemic that led to inequities in not only health but economic opportunities, uh, wealth, education, criminal justice, um, and fairness under law. All those things are still there, and we now have the impacts of uh, what we hope is a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic uh, to contend with as well. Uh, And so I I think you can quite certainly say that, yes, there will be a disproportionate impact felt um, throughout the lives of uh, many of our families, many of our community members.
1: You wrote that, I'm quoting here, in salary projections, Black women are now in a downturn that suggests they will never close the wage gap. That's really scary. And
0: it's a, you know, a, a symptom of a phenomenon we have seen with other economic recessions. It's, you know, first fired, last hired. And, hmm. you know, we've seen this with economic recessions that aren't linked to public health crises like the uh, 2008 um uh, 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 recession, uh, and and that's something that we certainly saw and were afraid of right at the beginning of COVID nineteen. Is that once folks had to make decisions of you know who to lay off, and then once there was opportunities to come back, uh, that our our black and brown community members and particularly women uh, would be amongst those. And then there's other um you know factors there too as far as women being really caregivers and needing to you know stay home uh, during periods of time where there were school col- closures, um, needing to stay home and take care of sick uh, and loved ones who um, they may be trying to help them avoid getting COVID or maybe they got COVID and then now are suffering the effects of long COVID and some of the disability that has stumped up around that. And so I think uh, there's, there's a lot factoring into that. Um, and certainly it is one of, the, you know, a big impact that uh, is directly tied uh, to the pandemic uh, that uh, makes it hard to you know, declare this a complete success.
1: You know, you all wrote that the narrowings that we've been talking about in these gaps, the gaps start out wide, and then maybe they're coming closer, that they're examples of what's been called the inverse equity hypothesis, which I had never heard about. And it's really interesting. Can you you describe that?
0: Yeah, certainly it's work that's been previously done in public health that talks about, you know, when a new health innovation emerges, um, that it's usually initially adopted by the more wealthy and connected segments of our society. Uh, and so instead of... Uh seeing it as this new innovation that's going to help decrease gaps, it actually usually amplifies inequality instead of reducing it. Um, And this kind of explains why we saw those uh, gaps, why it's the beginning of the pandemic and with each surge, um, uh, whether it be availability of masks, understanding the importance of masks, understanding the importance of testing, understanding how vaccination uh, can be a critical piece of protecting yourself and your communities. And we've seen that with things like the oral antivirals as well, uh, and access to those and uptake of those. And so um, really with each new innovation, uh, again, those who are most connected, uh, those who are most wealthy, um, and in our society, because again, it's been racialized, those who tend to be uh, white uh, generally get access to these uh, interventions and benefits from these interventions first, which then leads to widening of the gap. And again, the, the frustrating part here is that we were talking about this before vaccination rolled out, for example, there was a lot of great work done around what would in not only an uh, ethical framework for allocation of vaccines, but an equitable framework for uh, allocation of vaccines look like, um, and recommendations were put forth. Um, and uh, by and large, uh, most of those recommendations uh, weren't followed after the initial uh, rollout to healthcare workers and our elders in congregate care settings, um, it it basically was opened up based on age alone and the frameworks that had been developed and all the time that had been put into uh, how do we more equitably allocate uh, vaccines based on who is not only highest risk but been most impacted by COVID-19 were followed.
1: Did you see that in your work as former director of COVID-19 vaccine equity for the Department of Health for Minnesota? Absolutely. In in fact, one of the reasons I stepped
0: into that role is because I had uh, been somewhat outspoken in uh, trying to push our state to better prioritize equity and have a Infrastructure that kind of could measure and use uh, equity as uh, one of the bar- uh, the um, barometers of success, along with speed. Because if you if, and listeners will probably remember, there was a lot of talk about how fast can we get shots out? How many? How fast can we get shots into arms? And it was you know a big concern that if you stress a system that already generates inequitable results to go faster, you're just going to get more inequitable results. You're going to find the easiest arms and not the arms that are um, at highest risk um, or have, uh, exist in communities that have suffered the greatest impact already.
1: And there are tools to help people plan for this, aren't there? You mentioned the Social Vulnerability Index, which seems like it might be used for preventing some of these gaps. Can you def- Can you describe to listeners what that index is?
0: Yeah, so the social vulnerability index is an index that the uh, CDC developed to help with disaster planning. So say uh, your community got hit by a flood or a tornado or a hurricane, um using that index you could look at the areas of your community that were at most risk uh because of uh social uh disadvantage and deprivation uh and then really pr- make sure you could prioritize relief efforts uh, appropriately there. And so using that index in the case of a, you know, uh global um, pandemic, you know, folks were able to start looking at how was COVID-19 being spread in areas based off of this uh, index, which looks at uh, census track level variables, 15 different census track level variables, including things like income, education, transportation, housing, and race and ethnicity status of a, an area or a community. And they were able to move that up to kind of the county level. So you could look at your county's SVI score, right? And a higher SVI score means your county was more um, socially disadvantaged. And we saw early, you know, in like July of 2020, that areas with high SBI scores, counties with high SBI scores were having more COVID-19 outbreaks um, and were starting to experience more uh, evidence of hospitalizations and deaths. This was proposed in many of these frameworks we talked about before as one way to prioritize allocation of vaccines, saying you looked at someone's county or zip code, um, and if they are high, high SBI, that they would get high. Uh, priority for a vaccination earlier, knowing that their community was at higher risk. Um, And this could also be used as a metric to see, you know, if we're looking at, you know, how many shots we're getting out, are we getting shots out to the areas that have been most impacted by COVID-19 or at highest risk for these outbreaks? You know, unfortunately, neither of those things were really done at a national level. Um, uh, Initially, some states did use SVI um, or their own geographic uh, disadvantage or equity indices to kind of try to track or prioritize uh, levels of vaccination. Uh, But that that is, you know, one of the frustrating things because the CDC has been doing a great job of uh, reporting out SVI um, cases and hospitalizations and vaccination rates, but you haven't seen it in any of their other guidance. And so I think that was, again, some of our frustration in seeing that, you know, saying that (laughs) we've overcome is that we we haven't clearly, in our perspective, taken the lessons that we could learn from the um, COVID-19 pandemic and really applied that to uh, how we actually change uh, things like guidance that's issued um, in our uh, public health response uh, right now and into the future.
1: You mentioned that inverse equity is, quote, predictable but not inevitable. Is something like the Social uh, Vulnerability Index and other things the way to make it not inevitable?
0: I do think so. I I think that it's a I will say it's an imperfect proxy for, you know, things like structural racism, uh, for example, but it is a place to start. And that, you know, we found that when uh, in Minnesota in particular, when we focused on SVI, we were able to get, you know, resources to communities, hard to sit. We saw a narrowing of those gaps, um, you know, pretty dramatically from that kind of 20% uh, difference down to, you know, uh, less than 5% difference at the end of 2021. Um and so uh, and so i think it is a place to start as a way to again look at when the federal government or state governments put out rfps for grants or funding um how do we make sure that those funding is getting to communities if we use far as one 1- piece of the kind of calculus of how we determine, you know, where our relatively limited funds go, that is one way that we could uh, really, again, try to move the needle uh, short-term during crisis response and long-term as we look at how is public health going to look like going forward.
1: Is there not a silver lining, but, but are there moments of hope here? You, in your essay, mentioned, I'm quoting, it's worth celebrating the tenacity of community champions in the relentless fight for equitable access to vaccines and other treatments. So there, it, it sounds like people are working on this, but, but too little, too late? So I wouldn't
0: say uh, too little, too late. The successes really come from being able to center communities and having them be the stewards of resources, whether it be federal uh, funding or huh. state funding. Um, in ways that we didn't before. There was a lot of barriers put up around having to um, complete certain processes to even access uh, federal or state funding. Uh, there was a lot of times where we, we'd go to kind of the usual players in uh, uh, these uh, settings instead of looking at folks who uh, were act- working directly with communities most impacted. And so I think some of the biggest successes do come from that community-led community led um response. In Minnesota, you know, we had these COVID community coordinators who were community-based organizations who were already doing lots of work in communities most impacted uh, by COVID-19. And what we had had them do is be uh, the ones who sent out messages and public health messaging. They've created hotlines for folks to call and get access and connection to uh, not only things like vaccinations and, and masks and testing, but mental health resources, housing, employment, um things like that um and creating those relationships uh, and strengthening them um i think is where there a lot of the successes and i think you see examples of that across the country um uh, as well i think what we need though is like this needs to be an ongoing uh effort it can't be just we were in an emergency we decide to do things different um, and now, certain folks believe we're not in an emergency anymore. We're going to go back to the way things were before. Um, and I think, and I think that is, you know, what we are hoping that this piece helps contribute to that broader push of yes, there are successes, but they will only truly be successes in the end if we change how we do things and if we learn from it and uh, do things differently going forward.
1: Well, that's a great point. You know, this the essay in the New York Times was just one example, gajillions of electrons have been expended in writing about racial health and the pandemic. Do you think the media, do you have any opinions on the media narrative around this topic? Yeah, I mean, I certainly
0: think that um, there's parts of the media that wants to uh, make things, you know, really simple and say that it's, success or it's a failure right and and it's harder to kind of sit in the gray um, and and do the work of kind of teasing apart which pieces are uh, truly successful which pieces are truly failures and which pieces we're still learning from and still trying to kind of push in advance um, from and so I think uh you know the particularly around trying to get folks to engage with uh, any certain piece calling something a resounding um, success or saying that we've overcome or calling something a resounding failure um, and and that these folks need to be held accountable. All those kind of narratives are a lot easier to sell uh, than what folks who are doing the work with community that are trying to change systems um, really encounter on a day-to-day basis. And so, um, and and I also think some of it, like the data intricacies, you know, really kind of get caught up, like looking at uh, one piece of data, uh, for example, just if you just look at that, you know, you can come to conclusions just looking at that. But if you then have to integrate all these other pieces of data um, that, again, muddies the picture um, and, and folks come away f- maybe feeling, you know, more confused and, and, and that is less satisfying. I'm not going to share this article, you know, with the next person. So, so I do think that you know some of that wanting to have it be more kind of ready to go, bite sized, um, uh, quickly digestible. Okay, I'm on to the next one. Is is a part of the issue? And then as we touched upon, you know, this idea of you know, um, comforting uh, those in power that, you know, they made the right decisions, they did the best they could at the time that they could, um, instead of really kind of having it centered on those who uh, were afflicted the most, right? Um, You know, a, a lot of communities have fought hard to get to where we're at, but how come they aren't truly kind of centered in this story? You know, the National Medical Association, the largest and oldest association of Black physicians, the National Hispanic Medical Association, Association of American Indian Physicians, Have they declared, you know, the COVID-19 a success story? Um, You know, and if if not, you know, why not? And how come that isn't centered in the piece as much as just folks who are able to give you um, some some quotes that kind of justify the point you want to end on? And so I think, you know, making sure that communities that you're talking about are centered is one thing that the media um, still is learning and doesn't do enough of.
1: You know, I want to tell readers that this essay was originally written by a larger group, That included not only Marina Del Rios and Neil Lewis, but it also included Esther Chu, an emergency physician in Oregon, and Taysen Bell, who's at the University of Virginia. And both of those two graciously bowed out because of stats, three-author limit. Um, So how how did you all get together to decide, gee, we got to write something about this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks a little bit to some of the conversation we're seeing unfold you know, in the last week or two about, you know, what is the utility of Twitter and other social media platforms? Um, I think a lot of us would say we got connected to each other initially through social media, like uh, interactions on Twitter, um, as well as just uh, other interactions in you know ta- being ones that are talking about uh, the health equity and racial equity impacts of COVID-19. And so you know, trying to amplify other voices um, uh, and saying, hey, you know, we're all talking about this. Is there uh, a space where we can come together and um and think about uh how we can make sure that the narratives out there reflect what we're seeing in our communities what we're seeing in our work uh and not just you know what has uh makes it through the different levels of um editing and approval at in mainstream media uh, outlets and so i think uh, you know that's where um i think uh, this this group really came from
1: Is that kind of a fun process the you know writing with five people i i find it that- <laughs> Hard to imagine.
0: I think so. I mean, um, so certainly someone who still is in, in academics, you know, it, it's really a, a team process. Um, and this is just another aspect of that. And so along the way, you actually can can learn things and uh, find uh, different um, uh, pieces of literature that you might not be aware of from colleagues. Um, and also then you can hear about uh, how that uh, is being uh really processed and internalized in their, uh, communities. Um, and and what are some lessons you could learn in your work? Um, and and then just get to to know people and, and who are the people who really want to kind of push and who are the people who want to be a little more pragmatic, um, and, and kind of seeing how, you know, within your own group, you can, um, come to consensus and how that can maybe help inform as you try to drive consensus broader.
1: Were you expecting any kind of particular response for this? Was it like duck and cover? Or, you know, we're expecting people to respond to this positively. Did you have any preconceived ideas about how it was going to be received?
0: I didn't. Um, it, it's hard to to know because you say that there's a lot of um, ink or, um, you know, electrons out there that have been uh, spent on the topic. It, sometimes it's hard to cut through uh, a lot of that. Um, you know, we, we did know that by kind of bringing up a specific piece that that could, um, you know, cause some kind of more direct, uh, response. And I've certainly seen that in other, uh, pieces I've written that have called out, uh, other specific works. Um, the hope was that it would get enough attention that there would be engagement and that they would, you know, that there would be at least a conversation that uh, around what we were trying to kind of push back against the framing that folks would, you know, consider that. Uh, going forward, um, and that, that it would maybe disrupt what we saw as a kind of a early cycle of, you know, mission accomplished, if you will. Um, and so, uh, and, and I think certainly from my perspective, it seems to have, have started that process. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to say, like, you know, I, having a, a, I never have like a preconceived notion. I personally, um, I'm not going to put anything out there that I like, feel like I have to duck <laughs> and, and cover from. I'm going to st- yeah. stand up, stand out there and, and um, uh, you know, engage uh, with folks who are really intent on uh, honestly engaging um, and, and, and go forward from there, uh, hopefully learn and hopefully help uh, educate along the way.
1: Well, Nathan, thank you so much for being with us today. I Just from talking with you, it sounds like you are actually part of that community of champions. And I hope as part of that community, you and your colleagues have great success.
0: Thank you, Pat. Uh, I just want to again say I'm representing my co-authors who are amazing advocates in their own right. Um, And so uh, I wouldn't be here without them. So so thanks so much to our team. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate Stats uh, giving us the platform to be a part of the conversation and hope to be back here again soon.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. I hope you'll join us next week, which will be something different for us. We will be recording the podcast in front of a live audience at Stats Headquarters in Boston as part of our Open Doors 2022 initiative. That's a civic collaboration that brings together creative minds working in the biopharma, health, medicine, and life sciences industries. I hope to see you there or hear you there. The First Opinion Podcast is produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the white water ahead.